0: Remember that conversation we had about <laughs> yeah. about trying to keep it just between the three of us? What the hell happened to that? <laughs> He's
1: he, is you know in the I was actually going to talk to you about that a little bit. First of all, welcome to the Eric Anders Lang Show, Tom Doke. Very excited to have you as a guest. It's nice been a long be. time coming.
0: It's nice to be back in Scotland. Always nice to be in Scotland.
1: Yeah, we. It's funny because we played golf yesterday, and I had some thoughts. I'm kind of the person who doesn't want to be on social media. I really don't. I really don't. (laughs) I know it probably seems like I do. And I also don't want to be in front of the camera. I really don't. Like, I started out as a filmmaker. So I kind of have this, like, love-hate relationship with it. And I wanted to talk to you. It didn't come up, really. But I know that you, you, I find your use of social media very interesting. You use it as a way of telling a story or reflecting on your personal Um, insights with your own job and your own travels and I was just curious to talk to you about the current reality that we're in you're talking about sort of doing a project and having someone basically illicitly document it and nowadays we we talked a little bit yesterday about not wanting your swing to be out there without you know your knowledge of it at least I feel that way what do you think of the world that we're in digitally and, and how that affects what you do and you know, golf in general.
0: Well, you know, I wasn't on social media at all until a couple of years ago and all the younger people that work for me sort of insisted that I do something <laughs> because I was really falling behind and I was like, you know, I always thought it was my kids' generation and I would stay out of that. And 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 it still probably has I can't imagine it has much effect on finding clients. You know, the guys who are hiring us are not are not the ones spending a lot of time on Instagram right now. So, but they convinced me that I should do something. And I kind of picked Instagram because I'm a decent photographer. And I can write a good caption to go with it. And you know, I'm, I'm traveling all over and doing all kinds of things. It's weird because sometimes the things I'm doing, nobody's supposed to know about yet. You know, like, Clients are very sensitive about talking about the project before they have the permits mostly in hand because all they need is five people to show up with picket signs, don't build here. And it gets to be a much more involved problem, so they they don't they're not putting things out in advance when you see a new course that's not happening yet and they're putting stuff out in advance, it's because they're looking for money. If they have the money, they're not saying anything until they're pretty far along. <laughs> <laughs> that's so interesting. Um, but you know I can totally relate to you know. I'm a photographer, but being in front of the camera is something entirely different and i'm kind of i've always been uncomfortable with that i don't pose well for photos, and i'm very self conscious about it so so I kind of try to stay in the background on some of that. You know one of the things from a from a designer perspective, the hardest thing for me is I used to really try to uh keep my golf courses kind of out of the limelight a little bit until they were open so that you didn't have too many expectations going in you know like like i remember when i you know when i was just starting out and i was writing for golf magazine part-time and doing other things part-time people would always be trying to promote what they were doing and they would always just over promise you know it's going to be a combination of Pine Valley and Cypress Point, it's like, come on, no it's not. <laughs> you know, there's no place for me to go there but to be disappointed with whatever you just built because it's not going to be that. Right. So at least we'd try to, you know, you'd put out a few pictures to try to get people to see what was going on. You know, I tried to avoid the signature whole thing, which most people used. But, but you'd still try to hold some back so, so that a golfer would go there for the first time and walk up on a hole like the 4th at Barnboogle that's a stunning hole and not have seen a picture of it and go, oh wow, this place is really cool. Because if they've seen the best picture and the best light from the drone, you know, I mean, sometimes you know, we make things look better than they really do standing on the tee a lot of the time. And if you go too far that way, then everybody's disappointed. And it's really hard in the age of social media to stop the tidal wave. The second day, somebody's going to have pictures online of every hole from every tee and every landing area. And you've kind of spoiled it for a lot of people that come after that. I mean, when I'm traveling, I try not to look at too many pictures of the courses before I'm going, because you know, you still want that sense of discovery that I had when I lived over here 35 years ago. and. I'd never seen a picture of a lot of these places until I went there.
1: It's so interesting. I relate in so many ways. When I I hate trailers for movies. Mm-hmm. Hate them. Um, and in, I've actually struggled with my own feelings of when we head out to do a job, uh, when, like an episode of Adventures in Golf, I struggle with this desire to know as little as possible showing up because, well, it's sort of twofold. One is it it leaves me potentially unprepared, mm-hmm. but two, it actually prepares me more for an organic conversation and actual discovery, I mean. An authentic reaction to what you're
0: seeing. Yeah,
1: and even now, like, be honest with you, I have done, and, and I almost feel, I almost give myself, um, you know, a little flack for being like an unprepared interviewer. <laughs> you
0: know <laughs> no, what I mean? Cause like, I think that's the best way to go, honestly. I guess
1: I really want to dig into uh, you know I think what probably separates you from a lot of colleagues of yours that are probably wonderful friends and collaborators in whatever fashion is your um, is your writing. Can you tell the people listening who may not know about the um, you know the the books you've written on the world of golf that exists outside of your own work?
0: Okay. Um, well, I've always kind of fancied myself a writer a little bit, at least I like to write. Um, my mom was actually an editor for a while, so I got some training early on on how to, how to do that. And, you know, from the time I was, I, I wrote my first article for Golf Magazine in the States when I was uh, 18 and a sophomore in college. I wrote the, I wrote a letter to the editor and said something. You know, I actually criticized how they were doing their top hundreds list, and he said, "Well, I'm not going to put you in charge of that right now, but you can." You, you wrote a three page letter and I read it all, so you can write. So, uh, would you be interested in writing an article for us? And you know, the great barrier to entry as a golf course architect is finding somebody who will trust you with millions of dollars and to spend it wisely,
1: especially on your first project. That's,
0: yeah, your first few projects, not just the one. But there is no barrier to entry like that in writing. If you can write, nobody really pays attention to the byline. They don't know anything about whole, how old you are or anything else. So I was writing feature articles for Golf Magazine when I was 20, 21 years old. And they they put me in charge of the top 100 list when I was like 23, because um, it didn't matter. Nobody was, nobody was analyzing that or pointing out, you're crazy to let that kid do that. Um, that was great for me you know it helped me get a lot of connections in the golf business and meet all the writers and you know all the people that were on the panel and um it's you know it's it's really helped even through to today as far as dealing with the media and understanding how the media works
1: um when you say understanding how the media works what does that mean
0: oh um (laughs) I'm not sure how much we should say. I mean, you know, so much of what so up. much of what you read now is paid content, yeah. even though it doesn't say so. That's tar- that's true. I mean, it, it's gotten to the point that you know there's several publications that are just you know if you just spent five thousand dollars a year with us, we'd let you put two or three articles, and you could say whatever you want. <laughs> Seriously. <Whoa. laughs> and not small publications. It's kind of crazy. You know, I've always had the access because I can write. You know, I, I wrote for Golf Magazine for a long time until I decided this is holding me back because the other magazines won't write about what I do. They are competitive with each other. Right. So at some point I dropped that and didn't write for a few years. And now I'm kind of a free agent. You know, if I, if I want to write something, I can call the editors of most publications and they're all too happy to have me write something. So it's, it's worked out really well. Um, but as for, like, my books, you know, the, the first book that, that I wrote that sort of established my reputation as a really controversial person was the Confidential Guide to Golf Courses. The first version of it was 40 copies that I gave away to people that had helped me travel and see all these places, because they, you know, they all knew, okay, this kid that slept on our couch, now he's seen 500 <laughs> courses, and, you know, and I was only like, I'm trying to think how old I was when I wrote that book, the first version, I was like 26 or 27.
1: Wait, and when did you design and build your first golf course?
0: Uh, I was working on High Point, my first golf course, right at the same time, it was kind of, I started doing it, no, I actually started doing it before I started High Point, and then when I was halfway through I got the job and then I finished the book kind of in the winter between seasons because we were working in northern Michigan and there wasn't anything to do. Sure. But I just, you know, I printed it on a dot matrix printer, copied it, and sent it off to 40 people and the 40 people were, you know, some fairly important people in the golf business, a lot of them. So, you know, they talked it up a lot and it, it was kind of this cult thing, you know, that I didn't really anticipate, but because I was writing it for friends, I was just dead honest. All it was was like one paragraph reviews of every golf course that I'd ever seen, and the main purpose was: Do you want to go there or not? What's different about that that would make you want to go there, or you know, or is it overrated and not? So I said a lot of famous places were overrated.
1: What and, what particular tidbit gave you the most amount of uh, blowback?
0: Oh, geez, I don't know. You know one of the reasons that well the the thing that's the most controversial is the fact that i gave every golf course a score from zero to ten on my scale (laughs) and the reason i did it originally wasn't to set up this system it was so so i could write the less positive things about a place like pebble beach or augusta and still say it's still a nine out of ten don't take this the wrong way it's just these are the things that that aren't so great about it, right? Uh, but, this is the uh,
1: important take.
0: Yes, but you know everybody focused on the number, <laughs> so and you know a lot of people use my what I what I named the Doke scale to rate golf courses. There's a lot of people that use that when they travel now, and it's kind of scary, you know. And you know I was you know understand that I'd seen I was writing about or 600 golf courses in the first edition of the book. That's incredible. And well, I saw 175 golf courses just in the year that I was in the UK and Ireland. I was just going to a new place every day. And if somebody said, oh, yeah, you should go to Kill Spindy down the road, there's a cool little part three at the end of it. That's why I went there for the first time.
1: Did you, the process of uh, going to a golf course, what does that look like for you? What, what did you need to do in order to feel satisfied writing about it? Walk
0: into the pro shop, ask if it's okay to go have a walk around and have a walk around. You know, I get criticized a lot for well, you didn't even play the golf course. And now, I mean, you know, I've seen sixteen hundred golf courses now. I've probably only played maybe six or seven hundred out of sixteen hundred. If I'd wanted to play more, I'd have seen less because you know I'll go see three courses a day sometimes instead of just going to play one. If that's the only time, you know, if I don't know if I'm ever getting back here. I'd rather go see more stuff. Hmm. And everybody says, "Well, but how do you even know how the course plays?" And I'm like, "What do I do? you know, when we're building a golf course, it's all dirt. I can't hit the shots and <laughs> test them out to see if they work. Right. I have to be able to visualize that. If I can visualize that in the dirt, I can visualize that it'll Spindy without hitting the shots." Now, you do miss things, you know, cuz you're either cuz you're dodging people out there or or you just you know the charm of a place can skip by when you're just looking at it hole by hole. Sometimes, so so it's I understand that it's important to go back, but it's not like I I miss a review by a mile mm. of you know oh that place is no good and it's a really good golf course or vice versa. Um, yeah, it's better the more time I I spend there. That's true for nearly everybody. You know one of the problems in the golf business now honestly is you can't get. All these people that rate golf courses, they only go once themselves, and they, and they play. And if they play bad, it infects their review. If they play good, it infects their review. You know, But if they hit it I'm trying to think of a hole yesterday. If they do what I did on the fourth hole at Kilspindi yesterday and block it dead right onto the beach, and then they scramble, or they, they pull it in the rough and they scramble out of the rough. They kind of missed what the hole was about. They can't even remember it at the end of the day. They just remember they screwed it up. Right. So you don't you don't get good reviews from people right after they've played golf on their one and only trip. Yeah, you know, and, and I've spent a lot of time trying really hard. Like like the little golf event I run for my friends is two days, and the whole purpose is to get them to go out there a second time.
1: Interesting. And when you say go out there a second time, it's a, it, this is the Renaissance Cup. Yes. Right. A coveted event
0: it's got its little cachet about it it's, it's funny I mean, what is it like from rank? the beginning we've always, uh, we've always had some really important and cool people in the golf business. i mean if you looked at the roster of everybody who's ever played it's it's a pretty wild list of people yeah. but you know at any given year we've got 50 or 60 players we, we've set it up, the first few years we did a stroke play, and I would have to keep track of the scoreboard in the end instead of mingling with people. That didn't work so well, so <laughs> so we, we set it up where it's nine-hole matches elimination, no no strokes, no handicaps or anything, but deliberately we set it up in the most random manner to provide upsets, because there's always a few really good players, and if they're the ones that win all the time, that's no fun. Nah. but. You know, you and I have a chance to beat a tour pro and one of my buddies in a nine hole match if a couple things go right. Yeah. And there's always some really cool, weird upsets that go on. So that's part of the fun.
1: Um, well, I, uh, I look forward to hearing more about that. I, um, I'm, I was kind of thinking about just the experience of traveling around and looking at golf. And from, for me, it's kind of interesting because you know we've done all these trips. I've probably played Three hundred and fifty courses, or something like that, okay. and I have probably only seen maybe three hundred and seventy, or something. <laughs> you know, like you know, I play okay. a lot of them. Yep. But it's funny because we, um, in the in the effort, and this is kind of what I was relating to you about. In the effort to see more, we play less. So like on the day that we played, uh, we played Murker and Cruden Bay on the mm-hmm. same day, and you know we couldn't play all of Murker because we had to travel and get up to Cruden Bay, and so it was kind of like. <sighs> it's a really difficult way of living, right? Because you basically say, well, I'd rather have, uh, you know, less of, less of one thing and more of everything and maybe be able to learn more in general rather than learn more specifically about something. And I think that that's sort of one of those difficult parts of like the job in some sense where you're sort of, a, that's a trade-off. It is, there's is always trade-offs.
0: And you know, somebody asked me a few years ago, Well, how many courses have you actually played more than a handful of times? And you know, I thought. So I sat down and tried to come up with you know the number of golf courses I'd actually played ten times, and it was a fairly small list. And when I when I made the list, I was almost embarrassed to tell them where it was. Like twenty five golf courses. Well, oh, they were not the best. No, they were. I mean, other than the the little public course Sterling Farms that I grew up on and the Cornell University course. I think those are the only two that weren't any you know, weren't anything special that I played a bunch of times. But other than that, it was like Pine Valley and Marion and St. Andrews and Dornock and Bally Bunyan and Pine Ridge Number Two. <laughs> it's the places that I, I keep learning from when I go back. Right. You know, if if I've been there three times and it's not a really, really good golf course, it's kinda like, okay, I've seen most of this. I don't need to come back here much anymore. I'd rather right. go see something different. But but those places, you know, It's like, I've been to Australia 20 times in my life. I've never been to Melbourne and not gone out and walked around Royal Melbourne while I was there. Just, you know, even if I was working down on the peninsula and all I had time to do was stop on the way down and just spend an hour walking around, I would do it.
1: And that hour walking around, you're not looking for anything in particular other than time to observe. Time to observe. And, you know, you just, You
0: lose this, you know, the scale of features is so important to golf, and that's the kind of stuff that you lose track of when you've been out on a construction site for a while, is like, how big do I have to make that little contour so it's going to make a difference? And you know, how big are these bunkers really? And it's funny now, some of it you can, you know, like I I can go... Remember a lot of stuff on Google Earth. You can actually measure things that you never used to be able to do. Whoa. So there's some shortcuts there now. But what you can't get is 3D. You can't get elevation. Right. You, yeah. you, you can get general elevation, but you can't get it in good enough resolution to help what you're really doing. I mean, that's the part, the 3D part is the most important part of golf course design. And it's the part that, you know, frankly, even a lot of the tour players who do design, they're not good at. Golf course architecture because they're not good at the 3D part. Sure. They think in 2D. They think, how far do I carry it? How wide should this be? You know, when the, when when it's convex, they just want to make that flat <laughs> instead of saying, okay, we, we can just leave it convex. We just have to make it a little wider because the ball's going to
1: roll out that way. Right. It's I, it's really exciting to talk to you and meet you because there are a few people that I feel like uh, we ha- I, I feel like. In some ways we probably have very little in common, but in some ways I feel like we have more in common than almost anybody else in the golf industry. Yeah, we've traveled to the further corners a little bit
0: more than other people. And I'm doing more of that just in the last three years because I'm trying to update the confidential guide. And most of the impetus for doing it is
1: to kind of push myself to go the places I haven't gone yet. It's it's almost like, you know, I, I get asked, I'm sure a lot of the same questions you do that, are unanswerable or uninteresting or just, yeah, I don't know, but, but I'm just, I don't even like, I don't, it's like, I don't even know quite what to ask you aside from like, why do you, do you, do you recognize why you do it? Cause I know it's not easy and I know that people probably think it's glamorous or whatever, but at the end of the day, like it's really difficult, especially to the places you're going to even more so. Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, honestly, I feel a lot of responsibility to give back. I mean, I grew up on a public golf course in Connecticut, and I didn't know anybody in the golf business, and my family wasn't connected at all. Everywhere I've gotten was by writing letters to people and having them help me from the time I was 17 years old. And, you know, when I would, by the time I was 21 and making my trip, you know, I got that scholarship to spend a year in the UK traveling around because Pete Dye. And Ben Crenshaw and Herbert Warren Wind and Dean Beeman all wrote letters of recommendation for me, and that's because I, you know, I've been trading letters with them back and forth, trying to understand, you know, it's like, what do I need to do to do what I do? You know, I've had all the help in the world from a lot of pretty important people in golf, some of whom are really famous, some of whom are not famous at all. You know kind of a lot of people you know I stopped by and saw Archie Baird yesterday one of the great golf collectors and you know Archie's 93 or 94 now and pretty bad health and you know that but that there's a whole generation of guys like that that spent time with me and you know just the way they treated golf and interacted with golf you know I sort of under, you know I've learned how important it was to them and kind of why You know, so it's my responsibility to have an internship program and try to train young people to do what I do. And it's okay when I go to Kenya for a week in the Kenyan Golf Association instead of showing me the cool parts of Kenya and the game parks and all that. They're taking me to every little golf course. Like, what can we do to help this place? (laughs) Even though architecturally, there's nothing you can do to help this place. But you know you know some place like that was uh, you know it was cool to be in a place that golf carts have not infected yet. Um, Kenyans are outdoors people and runners by nature. you know running is the most popular sport in Kenya. probably 's second, and golf might be third. They actually have a lot of golf courses, and they they walk there was There was one golf course there that. Somebody built as part of a housing development, so the typical development deal with, you know, long green to tea walks to get around where all the houses were, and the you know, the South African firm that designed it didn't, you know, they figured everybody was gonna take a golf cart. Nobody wants to take a golf cart in Kenya. They're like, no, we don't want a golf cart, but why did you make it a quarter mile from number two to number three? <laughs> <laughs> but we're still not getting in the golf cart. Yeah. We just wish you'd fix that. <laughs>
1: yeah. Why don't you just do it? Yeah. They didn't know their customer, I guess. When you speaking of the customer, I, I'm curious to know, you know, it seems like golf in as an industry, when you hear things like grow the game or whatever, da 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 it seems like golf has just sort of it's getting further and further away, industry wise, from the golfer itself. Do you do you experience that? Yes. Yeah. I mean when you think about it, all
0: the, all the old, famous courses were designed to be member clubs, and the client was the members,
1: and there was no profit motive. Whoa. And I've never even considered that. <laughs> Wait, golf courses, when they started out, it wasn't to make money? No, it was for
0: a place for all the locals to play golf. And let's do this as efficiently as we can,
1: especially in Scotland.
0: Especially in Scotland. Whoa! So, so guess what? That all changed in sometime between the twenties and World War, the end of World War II. So now everything is commercially driven. You know, even a, you know, and and even the clubs are affected by what all the commercial places do. They sort of set the standard. Hmm. I mean, the main reason that golf lost its way the last twenty years was. There were a lot of golf courses being built. The main purpose was a housing development, not a golf course. So the golf course isn't routed where the holes are the coolest. It's routed so the the houses space out (laughs) right. And the maintenance standard was all about, the the developer would spend anything on the golf course the first three years to sell the house lot, and then
1: he'd bail. Literally, but financially sell.
0: No, sometimes, you know. Yes. He's selling the house lots. Once the developer sold all the house lots, he turned the golf course over to the members and they were on the hook for the maintenance cost. Right. And, you know, the the level of maintenance that they put into golf courses and the standard that was expected was unsustainable for a, for a real operation. It, it only works with cash coming in from the outside to make it work. Hmm. But that's, you know... Augusta National only, spend, only can maintain the golf course at the level they do because they have a fortune in tournament revenues every year to yeah. spend. Um, you, you know, you can't look at what you see on TV and go, we should, our golf course should be like that. But of course, that's what everybody does. You know, even the little member clubs that weren't built with profit in mind at all.
1: That's challenging on so many levels. Yep. <laughs> and, and it kind of speaks to, like, I mean... <laughs> you.
0: <laughs> well, the good news is, I mean, up till this, up till you and a handful of other guys started doing this on the internet, everything was driven by television, and you know what gets on television.
1: Yeah, that's it. Now on the tee.
0: It's the Pro Tour, <laughs> and so every golf course has to be 7,400 yards long. And, <laughs> And everything, you know, it has to be flawless looking on TV and bright green and, and you know, okay, we'll put blue dye in the ponds because they're looking a little muddy right now. And whatever it takes to make it look good on TV because, you know, and, the, you know, the host courses all support that yeah. and all, you know, whatever it takes to make it look good on TV, this is free advertising for us. We better make it look good on TV. But now at least there is some other stuff. My, you know, yeah. my kids' generation, they don't watch TV, no. so they're not going to get infected by that. They'll learn about golf from you. That's a good thing.
1: I appreciate that. Um, if if uh, you, you talk about the one-time experience, is that your, that's your idea, am I right? Oh,
0: no, not really. Um, Well, as I said, I'd rather people come back twice. (laughs) But but, I mean what I'm saying is the the, you know, the Renaissance Club is a private club developed by a bunch of Americans. And I always wondered how they would ever thread the politics to have a tournament here when it's one of the only courses in Scotland you can't get on as a visitor. It was easier to get on Muirfield than it was to get on the Renaissance Club. (laughs) And and, you know, and the Scots in general are not, you know, well, most of these courses are public. Right. You know, St. Andrews and Carnoustie are munis, but, but all the little clubs, they're happy to take the visitor money because that just makes it less for the members to pay. Right. That's the whole idea. Um, here, it wasn't that way at all, and they're trying to sell expensive memberships, and you can't, how can you sell an expensive membership to a guy if you just let somebody else, if you just let his buddy pay, play for a hundred bucks? yeah so you have to keep the veneer of it being exclusive, but as part of this deal for the Scottish Open they've agreed to let visitors come under certain conditions, and you know basically you can come play you can't come back, so you have to be a member if you want to play it more than once or twice maybe right um, but that you know it'll be i think it'll be better for the club revenue wise too, but more importantly you know The Scots have always looked at this as being behind the gate and you can't get in and a bunch of Americans dismiss that. Now people get to see the golf course and it won't be this this thing that's trying to be special. And it'll just, they'll come and see the golf course and see what they really think of it. You know, and I'm, I'm happy for that.
1: Hey, Sklar Brothers here, Randy and Jason, and we have a couple of podcasts. If you you know them or you don't know them, check them out. We do View from the Cheap Seats, which is sports and comedy. And we have a podcast called Dumb People Town where we break down stupid behavior done by stupid people in this stupid world of ours. It is hilarious. Check them both out. And now, check out this podcast. I, I was under the impression that one time experience also existed at Terra ED and other places. It does. You know, S- S- uh,
0: Sandhills has that. Okay. You know, they they were kind of the first course in America that I know of to try that. As you know, their members are there. If they have a big membership, but it's a national membership. Their members don't get there that often. So they, you know, in the shoulder seasons, if the place isn't booked up, you can just write a letter and they'll let you come stay and play for a day or two. Um, but you can only do it once, and they really do keep track. Whoa. Um, Terry Eady did the same thing. They, they, um, it, Rick got that idea from Sandhills, basically. But he thought, you know, when I talked to him the first time, he didn't even have a business model for the thing. He was thinking about just making it private for himself and him and his friends playing golf. And I was like, don't do that. You know, <laughs> for one thing, you'll get tired of spending 800000 or a million dollars a year maintaining it. You know, and paying the bills yourself, even if you if, even if you do have all the money in the world, that you know that that will just grind on you because that's not, you didn't get all the money in the world by doing businesses like that. Yeah. Um, and the business model he came up with is it's the best of both worlds. It's a, it's a really special private club, and there's not many people around. But he also gets. The amount of play he wants from the overseas visitors who are making their once-in-a-lifetime trip to New Zealand, which is really, you know, most of the people that play Carrie Cliffs and Kidnappers and Jack's Point are, you know, once-in-a-lifetime visitors. So, you know, Rick's getting just as much business out of them as those other resorts do, except it's extra special because they're getting to do it at a club that's yeah. that's really kind of a different feel and a different setting. Yeah. and. And he's come up with a great membership over time too. I mean, you know, the key the key to that place is, is close enough to Auckland, where all the money is in New Zealand, that they can actually make it work for some New Zealanders. Um, you know, New Zealand's it's the most beautiful place in the world. It's a pretty small economy. Mm. It's very hard for a modern. It's very hard to build a modern golf course and pay for it with the amount that people are willing to. To play golf in New Zealand, just New Zealand is just like Scotland. Most of the clubs are small little things. It costs like five hundred bucks a year to be a member. Yeah, and you you know you can't build a twenty million dollar project and make five hundred dollars a year from members and have that work. Yeah, <laughs> unless you're just willing to write off the whole cost of having built it, and and even then it's pretty hard to make the numbers work.
1: You know, Tara ter- ter- Eady was. Um a wonderful experience for me. I was uh, adequately unprepared, which was enjoyable. Um, it had a very long driveway, which gave me a lot of time to think, it, in, in, in a metaphorical way speaking as well. And, um, you know, I mean we talked a, bit a little bit yesterday briefly while we were playing golf, but, um, you know, I, I, I can't, as the guy who makes the show about playing golf in strange places across the world, I can't answer favorite golf course with Tara Eadie, but if I had to pick at my deathbed where I was gonna, it would, it would might be there, right? I mean, there's just something so special about it. How do you, how do you traverse that line? I mean, cause we talked a little bit about Para Para Umu, which was a last minute addition to our wonderful trip through New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Titarangi is a great example of like, kind of worse for wear, wonderfully historical, unique, community oriented. Um, you know, I mean, it's just sort of different strokes for different folks. But right. how do you, how do you, uh, you know, you talked about service already once, and so maybe I could bring it back to that and and look at.
0: Well, at the end of the day, I don't really care about the service at all. For me, it's about the golf holes. You know, that that's what that's what I want to see or not see. And you know, I can I can go see some cool golf holes on a place that has no money and it's it's grazed by sheep and. They, they're, they're barely hanging on as a golf course, but it's cool. And that will do a lot for, well, way more for me than seeing a brand new modern course. They spent all the money in the world, but they, you know, it just doesn't have character to it.
1: When I said service, I, I was not sure if I said it properly. Right. I, service to the community.
0: Oh, a different thing entirely, yeah. So, I mean, I've been really fortunate in my career that a lot of my best projects are public and resort golf courses. And, and not just because I grew up on a public golf course and I'm glad that everybody has a chance to play those places, but also, you know, honestly, you know, Banded Dunes and Kidnappers and Barnboogle get all the free advertising in the world because they're beautiful places that the readers can go see. Yeah. So they get a ton of free publicity and there's always pictures of those courses in the magazines. You know, when you win the best new course of the year by Golf Digest or whoever, that's kind of a one-shot deal. But building two courses at Banded Dunes is like winning that award every year because they just they keep doing features on the place and they keep promoting the place. Uh, so that's been terrific for my career. You know, I've done a f- few private clubs that I think are some of my best work that just don't get the same level of press and attention at all because they're private, and I understand that. Um, and it doesn't—it doesn't really bother me that they don't get as much attention because I get my fair share. Um, but you know, I'm not too attached to. You know, I've I've been lucky enough that we get a lot of attention for a lot of the things we do. So the other one, you know. When something sort of flies unfairly under the radar, I don't get too bothered by it.
1: Um, If you're listening to this podcast in your car, you can check it out on YouTube as well. We'll probably cut it up into a bunch of different little topics. One of the topics I kind of want you to talk about for newcomers to the game of golf, that's kind of one of the things I really like to think about because I only started playing golf eight years ago. And I remember when I started, I was totally confused by everything about the game. And I remember someone told me what Augusta was, and I was like, I couldn't wrap my head around it. <laughs> no.
0: And That's not where you I, need to start. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, I'm curious to know, well, one, if you have any general advice for newcomers to golf, but two, if you have a way, you know, we, we talked with Andy Johnson about, obviously, golf course architecture becoming the craft beer of golf now and, you know, how people can get into Golden Age courses and obviously modern designs that reflect uh, your work and obviously Corin and Crenshaw's work and so many others, but In addition to what a newcomer to golf should or shouldn't do what what can they do in terms of looking at holes and learning about what you've done and things?
0: Mm. Um, I guess from that standpoint, you know, Going back to the courses you like and trying to figure out why you like them is a great thing. You know, you will like some better than others. For the beginner, it's not just about how they play. They're not like they don't have as much ego wrapped up in it yet for it to be about that. So, you know, it's funny. A lot of golf course architects don't relate to why the average golfer is out there. Most golf course architects are really good players. You know, um. When I, when I. When I played golf with Jack Nicholas for the opening of Sabonic, it dawned on me somewhere around, he's not comfortable doing this. You know, he's, he hasn't gone out for 50 years and just played for fun. It's, it's always about, been about getting better or preparing for a tournament or other people's expectations. You know, it was really hard for him to just go out. And, you know, he always said he didn't want to be a ceremonial golfer. That's what he meant. He was not comfortable with that, and it, I, he has gotten over the hump. I've heard him. I've heard about him taking golf trips to Scotland with friends and stuff. And there was a while where he really was uncomfortable with that and couldn't do that. So that was it. Was good to see. Um, you know, unfortunately, when we build new courses, we're not building for the beginner. You know, people ask me all the time, why don't you do more? You know, budget-friendly golf courses. It's like just the infrastructure cost of building a new golf course, you can't price it at $20. You know That's not gonna work. The, the beginner places are the places that have been there for a long time. They're closer into the city, so they're more accessible for beginners. And for whatever reason, time has passed them by. They don't spend so much on maintenance. They can afford to be a $15 or $20 golf course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the growth of the game you know you hear all these people in the golf business talk about the growth of the game but the growth of the game is really in the hands of the golf professionals at the superintendents at those kind of overlooked places they're the ones that have time to you know a new golf course that's struggling usually can't figure out to have time to let kids play for a dollar hmm. they they need to sell that tee time for 30 bucks cuz they're they're already struggling
1: they're already upside down yeah
0: and that's one of the you know i grew up at a a public course in stamford connecticut which is a rich suburb of new york city but the junior program was you could play for a dollar around after three o'clock in the afternoon because it was a muni you know munis are this in this odd limbo in the golf business because most of the people that develop golf courses don't like it's it's unfair competition to them right so the whole golf business Disses on munis and tries to drive them down and tries to get them all handed off to you know the big Kemper. the big golf <laughs> maintenance organizations and golf operators. Where they'll fall in line a little more with all the other places that you know, so they'll really be in the golf business instead of in the hands of a community that has entirely different perspective on what they ought to be doing.
1: I didn't realize that muni's are scrutinized by their competitors. Oh yeah, I didn't have oh, any well, idea. Uh, I thought they were universally loved for their uh, you except know by the people
0: that make money in the golf business. I, they hate it, and they're they're <laughs> always, and they they're always bitching about it. What bad shape they're in, and you know what. <laughs> You know, just talking them down. I mean, that's nothing more than talking down the competition. Really, is what it's about. Right. You know, somebody somebody called me the other day. There's you know, there's a there's a project in uh, East Potomac Park in D.C. is a place that originally was a Walter Travis design. It was actually a reversible golf course, which is one of my interests. So, and a uh, a friend of ours, one of the young guys that worked for me for a while, is from D.C. Mike McCartan and. He's been, he wrote his college thesis on that golf course and how it used to be reversible, and he, you know, he's, he's trying to figure out a way to raise some money to fix it up again. And um, you know it's right next to the Jefferson Memorial. It's part of the D.C. parks system. I mean, the red tape involved with getting permission and raising money to do something like that. It's going to be incredibly complicated. God bless him for trying, but at the same time, you know, a friend of mine, golf writer, called me about it a couple weeks ago and asked me about it. And he said he just played the golf course. He's like, it's actually working as a muni. You know, it's fifteen dollars, and there's all sorts of characters out there, and that's what they can afford. He said it's not in good shape, but they don't need it to be. You know, why do they want to turn it into something else? And he had a point. You know, you need those places too. And the golf business just looks past that. Yeah. You know, no. You know, we got to look at it as a way to turn it into something else and make money off
1: it. Yeah. Or, or it it might, it might not even be about making money. But I know, in my experience, I look at Rancho Park in LA, and I'm like, this place could be amazing. It
0: could host George Thomas Golf Course. Yeah. Should be pretty good golf course.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but the place has like just burned out areas all over the place. It's crowded. Uh, there's a par three course next door that's closed on Saturdays. I don't know, it's like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's sort of, interesting. you're totally right. Like, it's like, just let it be. Just let it be messed up, because where would I have, go- I, where would I have gone to play? I didn't want to pay anymore, I couldn't. When I started, I, didn't, I, I could only play Twilight. I had, you know?
0: And I still relate, you know, everybody, nobody in the golf business ever pays to play golf. So we kind yeah. of lose track of how much we're asking other people to pay to play golf. Yeah. It, it's insane how much we're asking people to play golf in a lot of places. You know, you know, I get grief from friends and people that don't think about the golf business side of it a lot that, you know, banded dudes cost $300 in the summer. And you know, first you can say, well, Pebble Beach costs 500 you know. there's ed is absolutely full of golfers, so there's obviously enough people willing to pay three hundred dollars that's and that 's why they 're doing it um, you know and some people think it should all be altruistic and you know they should just lower the price to barely making money, but like we said that's not you know it 's all profit motive now, yeah, so you know some clients are more Uh, open than others to turning off the till for a while and letting people play for less or lowering the rates in the off season so that people people that want to get there have a time of year where they can afford to Um, but you know they're still trying to make it work and like I said new courses are not the place for the beginners to go for the most part you know there's plenty of affordable golf courses for people to start on The one other thing I would say, one of my favorite ways to play golf that nobody in America does is foursomes. And some of your listeners probably may know what that is. I'm sure they don't. When most hear the term foursome, they think four ball, four guys playing their own ball. A real foursome is two teams of two playing alternate shots. You hit the drive, I hit the second shot you hopefully hit a putt instead of a bunker shot for the third (laughs) shot. Which is part of the fun of the game. It's like, you know, your partner can get you in real trouble. But for beginners, it's good because if you go out and play with somebody who's half decent, you know, when you miss a shot, it's their problem. (laughs) When you if you whiff, it's their problem. You don't have to stand there and keep whiffing. Right. You know, you don't have to flail around in the bunker all day to get out. Um, it really helps, and it goes faster because yeah. there's only two balls in play, so it doesn't take forever. And that's the the whole thing that makes it hard for beginners is, you know, the group behind them staring at them when they're playing bad. Right. You know, because they're already nervous and flustered and not playing very good and a little upset, and then the thought that they're holding somebody up at the same time really makes them just want to run away from the damn game. Right. And if you know if if you sims is the only way I've seen that you can kind of keep them on pace with everybody else and not get too, you know, not be score focused so much, only focus on having hit some good shots. And yet, nobody in the States wants to promote that at all.
1: Zero. Zero. Literally, people don't even know what it is. Right. Um.
0: And over here, they do it like at Muirfield next door, you know, the game is play four ball in the morning, go in and have a lunch and drink too much and come out in the afternoon and play foursomes. And foursomes at Mirfield go, it takes like two and a half hours maybe to play 18 holes. Because the holes kind of go back and forth. So so a lot of times, you know, our partners go back to the tee. We go out in the fairway. They hit their tee shot, it rolls to a stop. We're standing right there, boom, we hit it on. By the time they get to where their tee shot was, the ball's on the green already. (laughs) And you just walk and chat with guys the whole way around. You have plenty of time to talk to the one guy you, know, you don't talk to your teammate so much, right. you talk to the other you know your opposite who's hitting the same shots you are right. hitting the T shots on the odd holes or the even holes. You get to chat with them a lot.
1: We should set up an event like that. Um, I'm curious to know if you had uh, if someone reached out to you and said, "Look, I got a speaking engagement." Uh, we're going to do a live stream. You're going to talk to everybody in the golf industry. You've got 30 minutes. What are you going to talk about? <laughs> hmm. Everybody, not just golf industry, but golfers. Just everyone can, can tune in live. Hmm. And you know it's going to be a varied and broad audience.
0: Right. Um, well, a lot of my feeling for golf and philosophy of golf comes back to that year I spent over here. And how golf as invented is a really simple, natural, affordable game. And it's just about getting outdoors and having a good walk and doing something while you're doing it. And you can take the dog with you. Dog's even happier. He gets a longer walk that way. And you know, it's it's all tailored to be affordable for the people in the community so everybody can afford to play. The reason it worked the two reasons it took off in Scotland were Number one, they had a lot of land that they couldn't grow crops on very well, but they could graze animals on, so the grass was short and you could find a golf ball and hit it again. It, you know, the courses were maintained for virtually nothing. You know You just kept animals grazing it all the time, and it worked. And then number two, the days are really long in the summer, so people, working people had time to play after work.
1: I had never considered that. It's
0: like till 10:30 at night here right now. And you know, they want it to go fast, because a lot of them do play at six: seven in the evening. it has to go fast. So they play match play and they play foursomes, and they play 5400 yard golf courses. That's fine, that's better. Um, you know And in America and most of the rest of the world, you know, the game has strayed so far from that. And, you know, I figured the rest of my career is like trying to give some of that back, that you know, I'm at least in a position now where, you know, I can stick my neck out and try to build a 6,200-yard 6, par 68 golf course and have everybody ask me, why the hell are you doing that? You have all the land you need. Why wouldn't you make it longer like everything else? You know, that's not the point. The point is I can build something that's really good and that everybody will have to admit yeah, that was a lot of fun, <laughs> and it
1: was only sixty-two hundred yards. What well, you? I want to see the Tom Doak uh, uh, management company. I want to see you like make the rules. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Think about it. Like, it'd be, you you would make mandatory foursomes on uh, you know weekdays. Well, in, in
0: in Britain, it's called a two-ball club.
1: Two-ball there's, club.
0: There's only a few of them, but uh, Brancaster, well, West Norfolk is one. Rye is another. I think New Zealand Golf Club down near London is another, but you can't play a four ball. If you, four of you can go if you're playing foursomes, or you can play in twosomes, but no four ball's clogging up the golf course. That's the rule. <laughs> and it's, you know, they, they, don't, they don't get a lot of overseas visitors because overseas visitors come in groups of four and eight, and they're like, we can't do that. They need you to know, shoot a 79. Yeah, we can't, we can't post a score that way. <laughs> And it's like, OK, then don't come. We don't care.
1: <laughs> no, no problem.
0: So you don't hear a lot about those places. But it, it's, it's a great way to play golf.
1: I, I get sad because I just think that um, there's no way to fix that. You know, we've got, what, 30,000 courses in the world, 18,000 in America. How are you going to turn that around? There's no, there's no way. I, I just don't see it being possible.
0: Uh, I don't see it being possible on a huge scale. You know, All I've tried to do, like the Renaissance Cup, the semifinal and final matches, are foursomes, alternate shots. Of course there. Just, Just to me, well, it's, it, partly it's so you don't bring the ringer partner and just watch him hit all the shots all day, and it, how you play doesn't matter at all. Right. If you get to the semifinal, all of a sudden it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> 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 I, I got to play now. <laughs> Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a way different kind of pressure, too, actually, you know, when you're playing with somebody good and you keep screwing up and getting them in trouble, it's like no fun at all. And, it, you know, foursomes is, you know, if you can laugh about it and just, you know, you know I hit a bad shot, ha ha, look what you have to do now because I hit a bad shot, you know, those teams always win because they're, they're not so uptight. But a lot of people are just too uptight to play the the game that way. Well, that's the problem.
1: Isn't one of the rules that you are not allowed to apologize to your teammate?
0: Well, that's that's a rule for people that, that have played the game. It's not a rule rule, but it's it's conventional wisdom for people that like to play foursomes. It's <laughs> like, you know, you can't, if, you, if you're apologizing for your bad shots, we're, we're gonna play like hell. <laughs> <laughs> we're just gonna get mad at each other, right. and that's not gonna work very well.
1: Um, what do you uh you've had a lot of time to think about golf and we've spent some time sort of uh, talking about the the wonderful parts of golf that allow you to travel and see the world and some of the criticisms on it now but zoom out as a golfer and even before maybe you sort of drew a golf course in your head or on paper mm-hmm. what had golf given you that sort of set you up to spend your life around, in and around the game?
0: Um, to me, the appeal of golf, you know, I was, I was always like a really competitive kid and I loved being outdoors and I loved sports of any kind. But I was a small skinny kid, so I wasn't like a great athlete. I just loved being out there. Um, and, you know, when I got to past about 12 years old, you know, it started being hard to pursue a lot of the sports that I love because you had to get too many people together, and you, know, you couldn't get enough people to field a baseball team and play baseball anymore. You know, tennis, you only need one other guy, but he has to be almost exactly the same skill level as you, otherwise one of you just mops the court with the other one, and it's no fun. Golf was like the one sport that you could go, you know, you could, you could play against an opponent, you can play against the golf course and the, the elements. You can just play against yourself and you know what your expectations are. And that's, you know, it appeals to perfectionist people <laughs> because it's so damn hard. You know, it's like there's nothing, there's nothing stopping you from doing it, but it's really hard to keep doing it.
1: Wait, that's interesting. You just said it appeals to perfectionist people because it's so damn hard. So are you saying in a sense that the perfect scenario for a perfectionist is something that they can't make That's perfect?
0: It's impossible, absolutely.
1: They want to be dissatisfied?
0: Yeah, you know, how many go- you know how many good golfers are like the most upset people. You know, it's like they shot 71 and they're still obsessed about the putt they missed on number 12. Yeah. It should have been 70. It should have. I, you know, I know, <laughs> I know a lot of good players that are like, they get upset when they get a good bounce. Because... <laughs> Because they feel like they didn't deserve it, and that could have been their opponent getting a good bounce that he didn't deserve, and that would really piss them off. Yeah. But they couldn't show it as much then, so they, they complain about it for when it happens to them.
1: That's fascinating.
0: Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you know, so many ex-pro athletes play golf, and that's why. Because it's really frustrating and challenging to them. They're they were They're great athletes, but it's still, you know... It's so much in your head, you know. Or, you know, you're not reacting. You know, like I mean, I watch sports on TV all the time. You know, I, was, I mean, we're not far removed from basketball season. You're watching guys make 30 foot shots, running over the top of a six foot ten guy with his jumping in their face. Nothing but net. You know, they have the physics of that are crazy but it's inst- it gets to instinct level. Right. In golf, it's, hard to, it's harder to use that, because the ball is still, there's no opponent making you do stuff, you have to pull the trigger yourself, and you know, you're just trying to relax and be consistent, and that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs>
1: yeah. You talked about your mentors. Um, I liked hearing those names. Uh, For those who don't know, um, Pete Dye, obviously, maybe the most well-known of the three, um, innovative architect, changed a lot, taught you a lot.
0: Pete and Alice both. Alice too, his wife. Yeah, Alice was, you know, they were both great players. They both were like Indiana amateur champions, and, you know, they could still... They were still shooting in the 70s and their 80s. You know, and Alice was... She was the supportive wife, but she was also another opinion on what Pete was building. And she, the very first job I worked on him for, uh, and I was on the crew for like 60 days in the summer. And Pete Dye was there at 6.30 in the morning with the crew, probably 45 days out of 60. That's how into it he was. It was (laughs) the only thing he was working on at the time. He was a worker and impressed that on me from an early age. Yeah, but Alice would come out two or three times a week at lunchtime and kind of catch up with what had been built since the last time she saw it, and offer her opinion on that could be harder or that could be easy. That's too hard. And she was like the governor. You know, Pete. Pete's famous for building places like the TPC at Sagras that are so hard, but. He built them that hard because that was for tour pros and he understood completely how good tour pros were. And if you wanted to show how good they really were, you had to give them challenges that looked like you can't do it. Right. And they they'll still do it 80-90% of the time. They just don't, you know. When when that 80 or 90 percent of the time only adds up to 75 because the golf course is so hard, that bothers them and they bitch about it and it gets on TV, but you know. Pete really felt like that was the only thing that you could do to a good player that wouldn't affect the, you know, that wouldn't affect the average player even more. Right. You know, anything you do to make a hole hard, you surround the green with water, the extreme example, you know, you're making it hard for everybody, but you're making it way harder for the bad players. And you can't, that's the 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 whole the whole art of golf course architecture is. You're trying to make it challenging for the good players and playable for the bad players. Yeah. And if you do the 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 thing that you can't do is make it fair. Like the further offline you go, the harder the next shot is. It's impossible. That will wipe out all the beginners, like in a, a matter of days. You know, <laughs> they they won't finish and they'll get frustrated <laughs> and give up. Yeah. If you're trying to if you're trying to if the other end of your scale is anywhere close to the pro tour. I mean, if it's even if it's all beginners, you know, if you're in a country, if you're in a small country like Iceland that doesn't have too many pro golfers, you know, maybe you can build a course in that scale that kind of works. But once you start including scratch players and, and plus six guys that are tour pros, yeah, you know, you, you've made it impossible for the beginners unless you do just the opposite of what people think is fair. You. You build the old course at St. Andrews, and it's wide and short grass from one side to the other, except for these pot bunkers that are like landmines that are really close to where you want to be. Yeah. And if you just miss by a little, it costs you a couple of shots.
1: Have Have you ever looked at uh, the way that they map out a ski resort and the level of difficulty of the runs? Is there Is there a crossover to golf?
0: Yeah, there, well, there should be more. You know, I, I never took up skiing as a kid. I grew up on the East Coast of the States, and my friends, if they went skiing, would come back with broken legs because yeah, do it it's anymore. just icy. No. And so I, that never really appealed to me, but I, I always kind of think that would have appealed to me if I'd understood that, it, you know, golf and skiing are about terrain. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's a lot of parallels there. And again, like, you know, just like I described for golf, you know you can race your buddy, but that's usually not why you're out there. You're out there to have fun and to be in a beautiful environment and be outdoors. Right. Same appeals as golf. Uh, the difference is in skiing, they do have, they don't just have, you know, if skiing designed things the way people think we should design golf courses they would just only let the beginner start right near the bottom of the hill. <laughs> you know, okay. they they make the good skiers go all the way to the top, but yeah. you, you know, you, if, you were, if you were an average or below average skier, they'd make you get off the ski lift very early on and right. only ski to the bottom, which would be boring as hell. Yeah. So instead, they have different levels of difficulty for different skiers. Right. And golf doesn't do that. Golf should do that more. The reason they don't is because you've only got, you know, you only have one golf course that you're making your money off of, and you want it to appeal to everybody. But it's really, it's difficult to impossible to really make it appealing for everybody at the same time.
1: It'd be cool that you could have, like, three six-hole loops. It's, like, easy, medium, hard. Yes. I don't know if that would actually work.
0: I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean...
1: <laughs> It'd be an expensive experiment. Like, everything in golf.
0: Yeah. I've thought about it a lot and would, you know, how can I do things differently? Mostly, you know, the irony is we're here and they're about to play a tournament on my course, but, you know, I got where I am by dismissing that part of the golf business. Right. I'm not building for that. The advanced you know, players. Yeah. Pete, they're going to hire Pete Dye and Jack Nicklaus to design those courses, so I, don't, I shouldn't try to get those. I'm building courses for resorts and for you know public courses for towns that you know it's the golfers that want to be there and they're not plus six handicaps. Right. Um, and it takes a lot of the pressure off what you do. You know the greens don't have to be super fast all the time, so they can have more undulation in them without it getting stupid. Right. Um, you know when you when you build a course like this for a big tournament you have to be afraid that the governing body will come in and set it up too hard and you'll look like the dummy.
1: <laughs> that's, that's, that's hard.
0: <laughs> and that's, you know, that's why Jack Nicholas builds courses that are fairly conservative. Right. Because he knows they could make it foolish yeah. if he did anything else. And it's not in your control anymore. It's not yours when you're done. That's one of the things I had the hardest time letting go of for it took me years for the first couple of courses. It's like you know it's like you're an artist. once you've sold your work, it's not yours.
1: They can literally adjust it. They can
0: <laughs> adjust it. You know, they can listen to you or not listen to you is how you think they should be doing things. But the more you try to force and tell them what they should be doing, the less they'll listen.
1: Is there a weird thing in your contract there that you've tried to... There's got to... The contract No, no.
0: I mean, you, you know, when you're, when you're starting out, you don't have any power in that situation. <laughs> you know, Jack Nicholas can sign a contract that says you cannot alter this in, fi- in the first five years or I will take my name off it. Whoa. Which is kind of an idle threat. I mean, everybody... They marketed it for two years that he built the golf course. They, wa- they want to... This hole is just way too hard and they need to fix it. A is he really going to tell him no and B if he if he tells him no and I'm taking my name off it everybody knows he designed it already anyway <laughs> so it's 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 kind of an idle threat on some level but you know he's trying to maintain control as much as he can sure. because it's his name and everybody presumes that everything that goes on out there is that's the way Jack wanted it
1: right so
0: he wants to have that level of control but but real, but realistically, if I'm a client, I'm not signing that. Sure. And if, if I'm a client of any other golf course architect who doesn't have that much power, I'm, I'm really not signing
1: that. No. Well, I couldn't imagine. Uh, I mean, no, I guess some people edit my videos. I don't get control there. I guess it just depends on how much you're getting paid. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I never thought of that. So um, the next mentor you talked about was Dean Beeman. And I had the chance to interview him, one of the first interviews I ever did in golf. Really? And Yeah, and, and at the time, I didn't really know much about anything, and I remember just being really inspired by this person. Um, can you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, I mean, he was
0: commissioner of the tour for about 10 or 15 years, after he stopped. right after he stopped being an active player. You know, he was only in his late 30s, or early 40s when he took the job as commissioner. And he had always been... A really short hitter who had to grind his way around the golf course as a contemporary of Jack Nicholas, hitting the ball 50 yards past him and trying to compete with that. But, you know, so he really felt for those kind of players too. And he wanted to make sure when they developed the TPC at Sawgrass, which was really his idea, and he's the one who hired Mr. Dye to do it, that the golf course worked for all different levels of players, even tour players, that there, that there are level, different levels of tour players. We, you know, we think of them, they're all great players, but they right. have different games and different strengths and weaknesses. And you, you certainly, when you, when you stereotype what a tour player can do, you're thinking about the long hitting guys and you're, if you're building to that, you're building that to the detriment of some of the other guys. Right. Bima didn't want that. He also he was totally on board he's the one who told mr die you know i don't want this golf course to be i want it to be controversial i want it to be hard for them i want to see them sweat on online which the players did not understand they were not very happy with it when they first saw it because i mean those first couple of years of that event were really controversial. You're talking
1: about the origin of the players in TPC Sawgrass? Yes. Being the first The first event, the first
0: event, the first tournament they had there was 1982 when I was a senior in college and I just worked for Pete Dye for one summer, actually I went there on my spring break my senior year of college to watch that tournament, and I basically hung out with Mr. Dye for three days and listened to him deal with the media. (laughs) watched him go watch people play the golf course and try to assess for himself whether it was working the way he wanted to or not in spite of all the criticism which he you know we would watch three or four groups play a hole and you'd see guys try to hit recovery shots from different places around the greens to varying degrees of success which was the idea you know it was really hard to get up and down if you missed it over there to the right it was okay if you missed it to the other places that's a that's a Part of golf course architecture, most people don't think about. It. But yeah. that's that's probably more important than am I on the right side of the fairway or not? Right. Uh, you know, there's places. You know, on a tough golf course, there's places where even a great player has a really hard time getting up and down. And they know not to miss there. They they take that out of play. Yeah. I'm, I'm aiming 20 feet below and left of the hole, and. They think about it in positive terms. I am aiming 20 feet below and left of the hole, not, I cannot be over the back of the screen (laughs) on the right. Right. Because then you will do that and you'll be in trouble.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, But the commissioner was, you know, when I first wrote him, he was, I was like, just looking for advice and his advice, like everyone else in the golf business in 1980 was, work for Pete Dye. He's the only one who's really, A, he's involved in Building his courses as well as just drawing it and handing it to somebody. So there's a chance to work for him. Mm. You know, there's a construction crew that has to go on here. And they all thought he was the one guy doing innovative stuff and, you know, putting out a consistently good product. And I listened.
1: Did you ever uh, uh, expect to be here now? In some in some sense.
0: No, I mean, you know, I'm a smart person, so I thought I can do this job. I can I could be good at this. Um, it was a great it was great when I did my first couple of courses, and I found out oh yeah I can, actually can be good at this. You know it's because you don't know you, you know you really don't know when you're starting out. Can I design something that's interesting, and can I get it built for a budget? And you, you, you have to succeed or fail. And you, you know that's the thing—you keep getting better at that part over time. It's just mm. practice. You know, there's a lot of—you know—there's a million people with ideas on how to design golf courses, and then what makes you good at it is both the idea, but the ability to get it in the ground, and. You know, and the experience to get it in the ground. Right. You know, you're not going to do your best job your first time out. It's funny, you know, because a lot of, a lot of the backstories of famous courses, Pine Valley, uh, Mary and you know, this amateur guy that designed one course in his life and it's it's the greatest golf course. And you know, now I'm in the business. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah, that amateur guy that built Pine Valley, he was he was like golfing buddies and friends with. Tillinghast and George Thomas and all these other guys who helped them, you know, and Harry Colt came through and had a look at his routing and made some suggestions, and so the story is like what people want to tell you, you know. There was a lot of experience there at Pine Valley too, um, but um, you know, when you when you ask your question, I thought. You know, I remember living in Scotland in 1982 and 1983 and thinking, well, I'll never build a golf course here. They've got so many great golf courses already, they, they don't need any more golf courses. And for a long time, that's true. I mean, since, since I was here 37 years ago, maybe there's 10 or 15 new courses in Scotland. And it's kind of amazing to me that I get to do one of them. But of course, it was developed by a bunch of Americans. That helped. Although, funnily enough, I mentioned Archie Baird earlier. Archie was the one who recommended me for the job. I've gotten a couple of jobs where um, the client wanted to hire a young Scottish guy who knew something about Scottish links. And the people I met when I was in Scotland years ago or coming back to Scotland over the years is like, no, you don't want them. You want this guy. He's actually, you know, he's spent a lot of time here, he's learned how we do things
1: maybe even your non-scottish teachings maybe even gave you more of a highlighted version of what scotland has given to the world as far as golf
0: yeah i think so i mean you know i just i'd seen just enough of the golf business at 21 before i before i came over here to see how different this was yeah but i hadn't you know a lot of architects when they finally come here after they've been working in the business for a while they just dismiss so many things as, that's not the way we do things now. That's impractical. It's, I guarantee you whatever else it is here, it's more practical than what we do in America. <laughs> right,
1: yeah. That's over and over, I see that. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, is, there, is there anything else you wanna add or anything that you feel like needs to be discussed?
0: Oh, geez. It's a pretty big it's a pretty big world of golf. We can, we can have probably talk one. again someday yeah. down the road. But I appreciate it. I appreciate being here.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was good. All right, folks. Precision Pro. One advantage that low-handicap golfers have that has nothing to do with the mechanics of their swing, it's that they approach every shot with all the right information. The more informed you are, the better your decision-making process is before you even swang that club. I rely on Precision Pro rangefinders, To give me the precise information as I make my way through 18 holes, sometimes 36, MJ. I've carried several of their rangefinders around the world with me, and they've all been easy to use, incredibly fast, and most importantly, it gives me the exact yardage so I can choose the right club. You know, you need those two things. It's a relationship, folks. You can't just hit the same club on every shot, and you can't just hit the same yardage. All golfers need a rangefinder that they can trust. I'm telling you that my boys over there in Cincinnati, I trust them. And I'm just saying that the Precision Pro is a brand I trust. My listeners also receive twenty dollars off any of their great range finders. Just use the promo code ERIC at checkout for an extra twenty dollars off E R I K to add to one of their award winning rangefinders to your bag this summer. You can even put it in your pocket. I do that too. It actually is, it's got a magnet too and it goes onto your cart. But if you put it on the cart, you might forget it. I've done it, folks. Don't do it to yourself. Don't do your, don't play yourself like that. Best of all, Precision Pro Golf is the only rangefinder that offers free lifetime battery replacements. So not only are you getting a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. It's a commitment. It is a lifetime commitment. You literally, hand in hand, with Precision Pro, Well, I'm not sure where that came from. Anyway, it's all part of the industry-leading customer service that Precision Pro Golf delivers to every customer. Booyah. Swing with confidence, hit more greens, and with use—and I'm going to do that one more again. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Later. All right. whoop, folks. Whoop. W-H-O-O-P. I think you know what I'm talking about. You've seen Rory wearing it. You may have seen me wearing it, and I'm pretty much into this wearable device. Wearable technology. Wearable. I like it. At first I was like not sure if I was gonna like having this thing on my wrist, but I'm into it, mostly because of the incredible amount of information that it gives me about me and my life and how to perform better. Like I'm not gonna ever be some amazing athlete, but I do like getting this feedback from my body. So basically it has inside of it this crazy light that reads not only your heart rate, but all sorts of other things about your body, mostly the the time in between heartbeats, the heart rate variability. That's key. Um, anyway, it provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep and how recovered your body is and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. Big key takeaway, walking 18 holes, that's a workout, folks. No joke. Um, so anyway, when I get up, I look at my whoop score. I try to see how I slept last night. Uh, and I've tried to incorporate takeaways to get better sleep and, uh, especially when traveling and stuff like that, cause rest is really important and, uh, the quality of sleep is really key. So, you know, it, it has all of these, you know, suggestions for getting better sleep. The biggest takeaway is consume a lot of water. Um, also I've started exercising more this thing plugs in great to all of my exercise routines and I can see exactly where I'm at, at my, uh, max heart rate. Um, it's got a built in feature with a strain coach that it gives you a target exertion goals and work out to work out optimally for the level of intensity. Um, it basically is a personal assistant for your working out um, and folks, Big deal for you guys. They're offering 15% if you use the code EAL at checkout. That's 15% off, WHOOP.com and enter EAL at checkout to get your discount. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. Uh, it's got it's custom tailors to your body. It takes like a like a little bit of time to get to know you, and then it knows you, and it's fun because I've got a lot of friends that use it, and we talk about it. I'm like, yo, what was your sleep score last night, bro? And basically, it's how early did you go to bed and how early did you wake up and did you get distracted while sleeping? Um, it tracks all four stages of your sleep, slow wave, REM, light, and when you wake up. And it can tell you how much sleep you've actually gotten down to the minute. So it's like the first thing I do when I wake up is I just check it and I'm like, yo, what, how did we do last night? And I can tell, I can notice the difference now. And it's kind of like that awareness wasn't really there before using the whoop strap. Um the whoop journal allows you to track the decisions that you make during the day and the impact that those have on your recovery. And basically guys, whoop can help anyone perform better, whether it's preparing for a golf match, yo yeah, race, meeting, etc. Whoop can help plan out your day and make smarter lifestyle decisions to help you feel better than ever. And I can say I have definitely improved in a lot of areas there, whether even now when I walk 18, like I feel better, you know what I mean? And I think part of that is you're just focusing on your body's performance. And this is the tool that gives you the insight to do that. So please go check it out. Support the people that support us. Whoop.com W H O O P enter code EAL at checkout to get 15% off. All right, folks, what's better than saving money on premium golf balls, saving money on premium golf balls that you can customize with any logo you want whether it's your dog or your lawyer, customize your vice balls at vicegolf.com. Also, podcast listeners podcast listeners get free customization using the code EAL2020. Hit them up. All right, folks, Adidas. Adidas is pushing the boundaries once again in golf footwear. And if you've been counting, I don't I haven't been counting. It's a lot of times. But they're doing it again, so whatever many times it's been, it's at 1. Uh, So you need to check this out. It's called the Code Chaos, all capitals. The footwear team let me know that this shoe was meant to break down traditional stereotypes and make a statement that there doesn't have to be one look for the sport when it comes to golf footwear. It's It's athletic and bold from a style standpoint, but this shoe is seriously packed with technology. It's spikeless, but beyond just being tested with guys like DJ and Xander, they did heat map studies heat map that means they know where you are right now they literally know and watch i'm telling you you're gonna get an ad for adidas footwear in your feed i'm telling you and i just it's not me i don't know if it's them it's probably xander not dj xander's got an x in his name so he's a little more sinister even though i would not i would probably feel more likely that dj would really he could he could do some damage with the club um to my face so to see how players shift their weight they use this heat mapping technology to to see where they, they shift their weight but also where you are physically at this current moment uh, throughout the swing so anyway with all that info they created a new traction system called twist grip twist grip that's spelled the way it sounds anyway so the players get the grip they need exactly where they need it and this is an ad lib and when they need it that's i just added that uh, it's waterproof. Waterproof is key. Let's get let's get honest, folks. If you want a waterproof shoe, unless you live in the desert, you can wear sandals or moccasins. But for everybody else, you need the waterproof shoe. So hit up the code chaos. It's waterproof, lightweight, and obviously has the boost cushioning, which we all love. There's even a high top boa version, which I'm not sure I'm man enough to rock. But John Rahm is, but he's also he's very very good at golf we can all agree these things are next level so get yourself a pair head over to adidas.com slash code chaos spelled the way it sounds although the ch in chaos is sounds more like a k so it's c-o-d-e-c-h-a-o-s and shop the styles and follow adidas golf on instagram and twitter for all the latest news from the trois stripes that's three stripes folks all right one more ad read i'll probably do another one after this jones sports go folks If you want the bag that I rock, it's the Jones sports bag. They got the player series. They got the original. What are the other? What's the other models they got? The stand bags. We're pulling it up in the studio, folks. But here's the thing. Jones, if you haven't seen the video on YouTube yet, please check it out. We went up there, visited with them. We designed a lot of cool stuff. We're going to be designing more stuff. We have two bags on the random golf club site that have the random golf club script on it. The utility trooper is the is the is the info i'm getting of the name of the other bag that i like it's got the stand it, it's got the stand bag i also i i mostly rock the original which is based on a design from the 70s uh was his name jones his name was mr jones mr jones and me now that guy got in a lot of trouble for some what's that taxi cabs. but the but the guy who sang the song mr jones he's no he's gotten a lot of trouble don't want to talk about him, but Mr. Jones—not that the song is written about—was a taxi driver in New York. He made a golf bag out of the upholstery in his taxi, and that's where Jones has come from. So they're obviously the comfortable shoulder strap on the original series is what I love. Got a lot of cargo space, and you got three pockets to hold all your clubs, and you look basically like a badass. You're, you're, you're. If you're, if you don't have a, if you don't have a significant other at the start of the round, you will have one at the end. Am I right? Watch out. It's, it's, you know, that's the studio here says get a Jones bag. I'm not going to say get laid, but basically that's what's going to happen. I mean, I, I didn't say it. You said it. You heard it. I didn't say it. Jones Sports, everybody. Love them. made folks. I got to tell you, the first golf clubs that ever went in my little old hands were made Burner Oversize. They had some crusty old grips that I redid myself at risk of my own fingertips with the razor and I, and I got high because there's an, I don't know if you've ever re-gripped your clubs, but you, you, you become an, an inhalant addict because you're putting like really noxious stuff. Don't, don't grip your own clubs unless you really want to. Anyway, mad respect. Give me a fist bump whenever I see you. Like, I grip my own clubs. I put the grips on them myself. I said, <laughs> how much did you say? I mean, you could save money. You save money. Cause I think you put them on, it's like 20 bucks each and you, and you buy the grips yourself. It's like eight bucks. By the way, re gripping 14 clubs, I mean, you know, that's like a lot. Go buy tailor instead. They come with grips. My favorite tailor made edition now, obviously, the Sim Max I'm playing is a monster club. One of the many things Tiger Woods have and I in common is playing the Sim. But also, I really, I kind of love the wedges, the raw faced wedges, MG. I both love the high toe in matte black. I also have a matte black shaft. I know you didn't ask, but I went ahead and told you. Anyway. TaylorMade, my favorite thing about TaylorMade beyond the incredibly performing equipment is the people that make this company up. the the band of the band of brothers down here, the band of sisters, the family in Carlsbad, really really gets behind what we do, and that means it's important for you to get behind what they do. So go support TaylorMade, everybody, and hit them straight, or just don't just just hit them with TaylorMades though. Just get some, just stop messing around with all the others. Hit them straight with TaylorMade, but just hit TaylorMade at least. I mean, if you're not I mean just just go I mean what are you doing just pause the pod go on TaylorMade what's their website I don't even they don't even need a website just go find TaylorMade asap There should be what What I play I play the okay studio is asking me to play I play the P760s 4 through pitch then I've got the milled grind raw face 50 54 and 58 and then I rock I'm in between the gapper and the sim hybrid right now I play the 2 gapper uh I've got a steel shafted six and a half project X in that one as with all the irons. And then on the driver I have the uh Sim Max with a nine degree. I'm still working on getting my numbers on that. I don't really know. I got the ten and a half and the nine. We're gonna, gonna do a little experimentation. Maybe honestly, you know what? Whatever one I don't use, how about it's yours? How about that? We're gonna I don't know how we're gonna manage this. Head over to the Instagram account. Get ready for the old giveaway of the a driver that I can't hit. <laughs> Anyway, TaylorMade's made the family folks